Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. I am joined today by my colleague, Teresa Welsh, who is a senior reporter here at DevX. Hey, Teresa. Hi, Raj. Nice to be with you today. Good to be with you, too. And we are hoping to be joined soon by a special guest. Let's see if he makes it on. But let's just dive in if we can, Teresa. You had a story this week. Uh, it gets into some technical weeds, but it's about a really important topic, uh, and that's the World Health Organization's malnutrition guidelines. And uh, you had a look at the paper that was released um, kind of in the pre-pub website. Give us kind of the top line. What, what did you find? Why is this such an important story? And, and we'll go from there. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Raj. So you're right that this is an incredibly wonky topic, but hopefully our audience will stay with us um, on why this is important. So essentially, the World Health Organization is responsible for formulating guidelines for responding to diseases worldwide. And malnutrition is considered a disease. And there has been a ton of innovation in the malnutrition treatment space over the last decade, which is the last time these guidelines were updated. So essentially, there's been a ton of evidence and a huge body of work that is now open for consideration by WHO as it considers sort of best practices, essentially, for how to respond to children with different forms of wasting. And why this is so important is most ministries of health will not implement programs that don't follow WHO best guidelines. So there are lots of NGOs out there that have been conducting scientifically rigorous trials uh, to experiment on ways to um, make treatment more accessible and cheaper and access more children. But if the WHO doesn't endorse these uh, ways forward, essentially countries aren't actually going to adopt them. So that's why this process is so important. Yeah, I guess these are what are referred to as simplified approaches by the NGOs. And the basic idea is, you know, we haven't really modernized the way that we treat malnutrition, especially in these acute circumstances. And we're you know using these ready to to use therapeutic foods, but there is the opportunity potentially to use new and, and innovative approaches that might also lower the cost and allow you know more children to be served at the same time, given tight budgets. What what are the NGOs saying that you're talking to? Do they feel like these new guidelines will give them a chance? So the NGOs, actually, interestingly enough, um, you know, it was um, challenging for me to review this document as not a doctor or medical expert of any kind. It's incredibly dense and incredibly technical. And um, a lot of these NGOs, which actually are, you know, made up of medical professionals and, you know, doctors and staff that really are super in the weeds on this topic are actually still reviewing it themselves. You know, this is a hundred plus page PDF, again, of incredibly technical. Um, work. And so a bunch of the NGOs are sort of in this internal process, essentially, of sort of 
reviewing it still. Um, it came also out right before the the holiday weekend here in the US. So I don't think that helped things that, um, you know, folks were then off for a couple of days sort of right after this was made public. But all of the NGOs are sort of huddling internally at this point and sort of deciding, um, you know, what their public reaction is. So I'm in touch with a lot of them and none of them are in a position to speak publicly yet. So we'll definitely have a reaction piece coming when everyone has sort of gotten the opportunity to, um, to really review what this means for their operations. Because of course, a lot of the NGOs are hoping that, um, you know, the, the guidelines will make these simplified approaches um, more attractive to countries so that in the end, more children can be prevented from starving to death. Got it. Yeah, it is a really uh, critical topic and one that we'll stay on. And we got our special guest now, Matthias Berninger is with us. Hi, Matthias. Hi, and uh, I hope you are doing well. Yeah, great to have you here. And, uh, you know, I think people listening in may know you, but you are the senior vice president at Bayer, responsible for sustainability and public affairs. And uh, prior to that, had a whole long career in German politics as a member of parliament for the Green Party and as a vice um, vice minister. And you're, you're very much involved in a lot of the stories we cover every day at DevEx at the, you know, the international level, the convenings that happen, the policy decisions that happen. So I'd love to just get your take maybe beyond the specific headlines that, that we'll get into, but just kind of where you think we are. Uh, we're, you know, here in July, in the summer, we've, we've had the Paris financing forum that Macron hosted uh, before that, the World Bank spring meetings and we're looking forward now to UN General Assembly, to the G20 in New Delhi, to the annual meetings of the World Bank, and then finally the COP, where I know you play a big role. Uh, I'd love to just get your take on kind of where we are now and then we can we can circle back to some of the stories that came out this week. Yeah, happy to. I mean, uh, one of the things that a uh, little bit went by unnoticed on 1st of July is, uh, was sort of the halftime whistle, whistle for the uh, SDGs. Um, so we are exactly at half point right now. Um, we are in a, in a very difficult spot. Um, uh, we have promised to achieve a lot of things as global communities by 2030. And um, uh, uh, now being in the locker room a bit, uh, uh, if we stay in that metaphor rush, um, the big challenge we are having is that uh, we are not doing as well on the SDGs as people had hoped for when they made the initial commitments uh, some seven and a half years ago. So that, that's something that's keeping me quite busy. And obviously, Teresa talked about one of the topics um, uh, to eradicate hunger in the world, where we have seen, I want to say, beginning with the effects of the pandemic, aggravated by the war and really fueled by climate change, uh, a massive uh, step in the wrong direction, uh, which means that we have to face an ever larger number of people that go to bed hungry. Yeah, and I feel the, the food crisis story in a way fell off the headlines a bit, right? As obviously prices around the world, including in Europe, skyrocketed at the beginning of the war, but now seem to have stabilized somewhat in the rich world. But that is not the case in many low-income countries. What are you seeing? You, you obviously have your finger on the pulse in terms of the agriculture and food space. What are you seeing when it comes to the food crisis and what the international organizations are doing? First of all, I see a uh, World Food Program in a very difficult situation and uh, Cindy McCain taking over uh, the leadership of this very important organization that only a few years ago 
um, receive the Nobel Peace Prize for the work they are doing uh, is in really uh, is in really uh, huge difficulties. Last year, as a result of the attention to the global food crisis, uh, the world has mobilized. 14 billion dollars a record budget uh, for the world food program and that was mainly carried by the united states and germany back then leading the g7 meeting however this year the the, the uh, program is nowhere near mobilizing that amount of money and what happens right now is that um, some of the funds of last year that still could be uh, could have been used or could be used in the first half of this year are running out which is why the World Food Program will now increasingly um, have to share with the world that there are whole countries, whole regions where they can't do their job anymore. Uh, just a day ago, um, you've seen that in some sub-Saharan, uh, 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 sub-Saharan African countries. You will see that uh, in, in places like Yemen, um, uh, Afghanistan, Syria. Um, uh, the World Food Program is running out of money. And, and sort of uh, nobody really seems to listen to the dramatic consequences that will have. Yeah, that's a, a really important point. I know, Teresa, you've been covering the World Food Program a lot. I don't know if you have a take on this too. I'm also interested in connecting back to the WHO malnutrition guidelines, whether part of this is given tight, limited budgets, whether there are better ways to spend the money, more efficient ways to spend uh, including on the approaches that organizations like WFP take. Yeah, exactly, Raj. And that's one of the main considerations that these organizations have right now is budget, is how do we feed more children when the number of children that need treatment is going up, the cost of staples that go into a lot of these products. So our UTFs, as you mentioned, ready to use therapeutic foods um, are manufactured um, of, you know, peanuts, sugar, oil, a lot of the staple that go into those, um, the costs of those products still remain quite elevated. Uh, you know, gas fuel to get these things around the world where they're needed also remains elevated. So these organizations really are strapped and they are on the ground and they see the rising need. And so they're looking for any way that they can to increase the ability to reach these children that need it. And so um, that's that's the impetus behind a lot of this. And some of the approaches that they're looking at include things like using one product instead of multiple. There's, again, this is very technical, but there's several different products that organizations use to treat children with different kinds of wasting. So there's severe acute wasting, uh, severe acute malnutrition, and moderate acute malnutrition. Uh, and some of the organizations are looking to, to simplify those um, dosages of things. They're looking to um, shorten the course of treatment or reduce the amount of the um, RUTF given at any one time. Basically, anything they can do to ensure that the treatment is still working, so they're not compromising the efficacy, but in the end, they end up with more money and resources to reach children that that otherwise wouldn't be. Um, and when it comes to the wider funding landscape, uh, particularly for WFP right now, as, as Marius was saying, it is incredibly bleak. Uh, and one of the large reasons for that 
uh, is actually the United States. So the United States is WFP's largest funder. And um, 2022 was a huge boon year for WFP from the U.S. because of the Ukraine supplemental bill. So some special legislation that the U.S. Congress passed that included extra money for WFP to be responding to the food crisis that was in part caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So um, last year, WFP got um, $7.3 billion from the U.S., um, and their entire budget was about $14 billion. So as you can see, that's that's over 50% of the entire budget. And that's far more than the $3.8 billion that the U.S. had given the prior year. Uh, so you can really see that that was really plussed up for last year. And that is not going to be happening this year. So Cindy McCain is uh, on the circuit internationally with her handout, uh, much like her predecessor David Beasley was. But they are really going to have to get creative at the agency to make up some of these funding gaps because they're being forced to make some really heart-wrenching decisions about who is going to get fed and who isn't because they simply don't have the money to respond to everyone that needs it. Yeah, that's a great point. And Matthias, you know, at the very beginning of this food crisis, you and I were talking a lot about the fertilizer space and how, you know, fertilizers were highly impacted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, we've just talked a little bit about the food crisis still going on for much of the world. How, how do you see it going from here? You know, for, for WFP and for others, a lot is going to depend on the cost of their inputs. And I wonder, do you find that, that food prices are likely to stabilize and go down in much of the world? Or is the fertilizer situation under control now? How do you see it from here? I, I don't think that things are very much under control at all. Um, we are inching more and more towards a staggering number of 400 million people who actually don't know where to find food um, in the next couple of days. So they are um, uh, really um, facing a huge uh, food crisis uh, almost every week, um, certainly every month uh, at the moment. Uh, and that's 5% uh, of the world population. So it's a significant number of people we are, we are talking about here. And um, the World Food Program is sort of the last resort with what they are doing. Um, uh, but uh, what's also important is to um, really uh, change the way we look at global food systems. For too long, in many countries, we have accepted that the population grows faster than the uh, effic uh, efficiency or the output of the agricultural system. And perhaps one productive change out of this food crisis is that I speak to uh, a lot of leaders uh, in, 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 in countries who now refocus on rural areas and refocus on strengthening um, their local agriculture. And, and here comes uh, fertilizer. Fertilizer is, is really crucially important. Some say roughly half of the food we eat today depends on the invention of, um, uh, of fertilizers that's a bit more than 100 years old. And um, what we have seen as a result of the crisis is that the fertilizer production, which is highly linked to energy costs, and cost of natural gas has gone down dramatically. Um, and uh, in Europe, for example, uh, we are not yet again on the pre-war um, uh, production levels. But Europe consumes uh, as much fertilizer as before. So without really adding new capacity, arguably with um, retiring a lot of existing capacity, Europe is still meeting their demand. And how they are doing that? Well, they're importing fertilizer, for example, from Africa, 
where this fertilizer would be desperately needed to help local agriculture to increase their yield and secure um, their harvest and contribution to um, uh, the overall food security. This is also one of the things not much debated, uh, but that I find really concerning. And it's kind of the opposite of a just transition, because what you do is you outcompete the poorest countries and the poorest communities in the world for your own fertilizer needs, because you cannot rely on, on, on cheap natural gas coming from Russia anymore. So here you see how this war uh, creates quite a lot of injustices. And here you also see how the market um, uh, does uh, create allocations that actually would require more investment in the World Food Program and not less. Yeah, it's a fascinating point, Matthias. And I remember this, this at the very beginning of Russia's invasion as natural gas prices in Europe skyrocketed and fertilizer companies that require natural gas as a key input just shuttered some of their plants. They shut them down because of those costs and decided to to uh, you know reduce their their production of fertilizer. And now, as you say, maybe they're finding it it makes more economic sense to import rather than start up those plants. And it creates a challenge globally for farmers in rural communities who require those fertilizer inputs. And it contributes to the lengthening of this of this period. The war uh, continues. Obviously, it's very much in the news every day uh, still. And the impacts of it, while they may have lessened in some of the rich world, are, are really just as bad as they ever were in much of the poor world. And your point's a really fascinating one as to why. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, executive editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you are likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevX Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevX Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevX Newswire and visit devx.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. The EBRD was in the news on a couple of points, and, and one was around uh, the president of the EBRD really saying that she's got confidence in the U.S. Congress to provide some additional paid-in capital, a significant amount, several hundred million euros uh, for the EBRD, given its plans for reconstruction in Ukraine. I'm curious, Matthias, if you have thoughts about how the reconstruction of Ukraine debate is going to fit into the broader context of global development. Is it going to be sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul? Uh, do you think the funding will be there when it is ultimately required? And, and maybe you have a take on, on whether the U.S. will step up for Ukrainian reconstruction, even if it isn't for something like the World Food Program right now? I mean, it's uh, uh, when, when it comes to the World Food Program, there is another very interesting figure that we also need to bear in mind. And actually, the World Food Program is still active in the country I'll talk about in a second. So the Chinese contribution to the World Food Program last year was $20 million. Um, and I think uh, given that we are talking a lot about how global power shift is happening in the world, um, if we want to really ensure that the World Food Program in the long run 
um, can operate sustainably, um, I think China needs to pick up quite some slack here as well in order um, for, for this organization to operate sustainably. It's not sustainable that more than half of the budget comes from one country. That ironically is the one country that hasn't signed uh, kind of the right to food. Yeah. So everybody else has, but the US haven't, but they are still uh, kind of paying the bill. So it's always easy to kind of ask the US to do more, but I think it's also time for China to put their money where their ambitions are when it comes to global leadership. Um, Ukraine, um, I've been there. Uh, actually, buyers investing in Ukraine despite the war going on, and I can only encourage uh, businesses to look into investing in the Ukraine now because uh, we cannot wait for the war to end. Um, there's a, there are a lot of needs, um, and, and I hope that um, there will be a general movement towards strengthening the Ukrainian economy um, in, the, in the months to come. Again, governments can help, and especially the U.S. government is doing, uh, is doing a lot of great things. The one challenge I see, um, I see is that uh, all of this public funding um, will be in vain if there isn't private investment as well. So we need to talk about how to entice private investment. And I'm glad that especially since the beginning of this year, there are more and more discussions in governments how to make that happen. And more, more importantly, also the Ukraine is really doing a great job in inviting private investment. In the sectors we are operating in, in health and in agriculture, there's a huge demand for um, reconstruction, starting with hospitals. And of course, uh, we have seen that uh, the agriculture infrastructure was deliberately targeted by the Russians. Um, in many ways, um, uh, Russia was able to really uh, destroy food infrastructure in the Ukraine um, uh, um, uh, starting with mines uh, that, that have been laid in agricultural land, um, uh, but not ending there. Um, the whole food supply infrastructure um, is, is suffering quite a bit. And of course, the blockade of the Black Sea is one of those, uh, one of those challenges in the news. Bottom line, uh, uh, Raj, is that Ukraine produces roughly half of what they have been producing um, at the beginning of this war. And if you think about it this way, if Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world, half of it is gone as a result of the despicable actions uh, driven by Putin and the Russians in Ukraine. Yeah, that seems like an important indicator, the, the percentage of food that Ukraine is able to produce now versus before the war began as kind of an indicator of how much it's gotten back to where it needs to be. Obviously, there's still active conflict in so much of the country. Um, and, you know, you brought up China. That China was also very much in our headlines this week. Uh, we had a piece talking about China's desire to cut its spending at the UN. It's now one of the UN's largest funders for things like peacekeeping and overall administration. And it finds itself much like the US or Japan or other large funders scrutinizing the budget of the UN and, and wanting to use its financial leverage to suggest where funds should be directed and where they should be cut. Uh, but your point about the independent agencies of the UN, like the World Food Program, is a really good one, where China has not become a significant funder. Uh, it's at $20 million. It's really kind of a rounding error at best, and an important point for the World Food Program to become financially sustainable, given the needs. Uh, Teresa, I wonder, as we kind of wrap to our final minutes here, if there are any other headlines from the week that you wanted to highlight? 
Yeah, I also, um, in the vein of China and the UN, um, wanted to uh, point out that uh, the Chinese have secured leadership of the Food and Agriculture Organization for another four years. So that election um, took place on Sunday. Qiu Dongyu um, was elected for a second four-year term, and in the end, he uh, was running unopposed. Um, there was a pretty tough fight for him four years ago. Um, China lobbied really hard um, amongst uh, countries in the, the UN um, FAO member states to win that election in 2019, obviously were successful. And uh, they are eligible for two four-year terms. So he ran for re-election. Um, initially, there were, were two challengers, one from um, Iraq and one from Tajikistan, um, obviously not countries with um, much clout in the United Nations. Um, both of those candidates ended up dropping out. So um, he has now solidified another four years um, at the helm of the FAO during this really critical time of risk responding to the global food crisis. The West was not wild about him being in leadership um, at that time, um, not wild about it continuing uh, concerns there that, that he's going to use the agency sort of to, to further China's ambitions and interests when it comes to food security and not really centering the world's um, needs. So that's going to be another story to watch over the next couple of years, but, um, you know, really monumentous election over there at FAO. And Teresa, if I, if I may build uh, on what you just said, um, he he, he has been running unopposed. Uh, and I hope that's also now a moment where uh, those who have criticized the FAO and also uh, his leadership um, will pause. I think the FAO has uh, moved quite a bit in modernizing uh, their approach to, to, to agriculture. They have been welcoming innovations in ways that we haven't seen before. And it's, it's critically important in a time of climate change uh, to drive productivity, given that we have so much stress uh, uh, on crop production as a result of heat and other extreme weather events. I uh, give one figure that illustrates that for me like no other figure. Last year was a record year for Chinese wheat imports. This year, that record has been shattered. And with um, the weather changing to an El Nino-driven uh, kind of pattern, wheat production will be under huge pressure. We see that in Australia already. We see it in Europe. Uh, we have seen it in Argentina. Um, so from that vantage point, the FAO as a key driver to modernize agriculture and to ensure that the poorest countries have access to innovation is something I would like to see in the middle. The FAO kind of in a politicking space where the organization is criticized for a Chinese leader at the helm is the most unproductive thing uh, that, that we should not continue to, to, to think about and operate in. Yeah, and you have to wonder about the geopolitics as it relates to these UN agencies, which play critical roles. Of course, the World Food Program, you know, it's set aside for an American leader. And you have to wonder if that might contribute to a country like China saying we don't want to be a major contributor to the World Food Program and whether institutions like FAO now under continued Chinese leadership might remain uh, under that leadership as China becomes a much bigger funder of the UN overall. Um, listen, this has been an, an interesting conversation and a lot has happened this week as it always does. What a treat to get some time with you, especially Matthias. Thank you for taking some time to join to join Teresa and me today on this week in global development. And thanks, we really appreciate it. Me. And thank you, Teresa. It's been great to have this discussion. Thanks, Raj.
This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.